Machine learning algorithms are being built into tools that are increasingly easy to use. Five years ago, a developer would have had to write her own k-means clustering algorithm, or her own random forest modeling algorithm. Today, using a complicated algorithm can be as simple as making a function call. On Software Engineering Daily, we've covered TensorFlow, Spark, and other software libraries that are empowering developers with higher-level abstractions to perform machine learning. In this episode, we talk about Keras, a deep learning library for Python, and we explore the long-term effects of machine learning. Keras is a deep learning library for Theano and TensorFlow. Francois Cholet is an engineer at Google and is the author of Keras. Francois, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, nice to be here. Very excited to, to do this podcast. So before we get into Keras, tell me about your background in machine learning and how you got interested in the area. So I've been uh, doing machine learning since uh, 2009. Um, but more generally, I've been interested in neuroscience uh, since, uh, well, since I was a high school student, actually. So <laughs> back to 2006. Um, yeah, and uh, so I don't know. I just I was just a big sci-fi fan as a kid, and I always thought it would be cool to be robots, right? And uh, so that got me interested in, uh, uh, you know, solving the problem of intelligence. Like it's, uh, it seems maybe a bit silly to say, but uh, at, at its core, that's, uh, that's what it's about. And so I, I, initially, I initially tried to uh, study neuroscience, hoping it would uh, help me answer these questions, right? Like, how does a mind work? How do we build a mind? And it turns out neuroscience doesn't really have uh, any of these answers, so after a while, I turned to uh, something called uh, developmental cognitive robotics, which is kind of a, a subfield of robotics that deals with uh, trying to uh, simulate, um, so building robots that uh, learn as a, as a human child would, you know, that kind of simulating the early stages of human life. So, and... Uh, and after a while, uh, I know, like, I kind of dropped out of it, and I just, you know, got into applied machine learning because it pays the bills, right? So I did uh, machine learning at a couple of startups, and uh, I, I eventually wanted to start doing research again. So that's why that's why I joined Google. Hmm. So um, the the movement from neuroscience to to machine learning is interesting to me. So, was there a point at where where you? Because like, so I was in. I did. I studied biology for a while, and there was a certain point where I was like, it seems like we have we we just don't understand biology uh, beyond a certain level. Like you know, speaking about neuroscience, you know, we can talk about how neurons work and how action potentials work, and but at a certain point, we're kind of guessing. Is is that is that the conclusion that you came to, and you wanted to go? You wanted to move towards a more deterministic field. So my impression of neuroscience is uh, it's uh, it's just about describing, you know, how the brain works at a very basic level, but it doesn't really explain anything. And if you just observe the brain, so the brain is you know a bunch of biological processes, and these processes encode information. But if you do not approach the brain 
from um, from the standpoint of information. If you if you're just trying to look at these uh, low level processes that encode information without you know trying to move higher up, then you're not actually getting anything out of this observation. So, which is why I find the opposite approach uh, more interesting. So starting from nothing and trying to, so starting from the information process and then trying to encode them in a different way, right? Mm. So, so starting from the, instead of starting from like the code and moving up to uh, the first principles, you start from the first principles and you move down the code. Okay, so you don't. It sounds like you don't um, put much um, esteem in the the way that the human brain processes information. You just it's it's just a means to an end to the way to process information. And whether we're processing that information using our uh, our bag of water attached to some uh, neural processing that we have biologically, or we're using a computer with um, with CPUs, it doesn't really matter. What What's important to you is the higher level um, informational processing uh, strategies and components. Would you say that's correct? Yes, absolutely. So I, I don't think there's anything special or magical about the brain, right? It's just an information processing system. And there is no reason to believe that it's the only uh, reasonable or, you know, the uh, one optimal uh, information processing system to, you know, um, the only uh, way to uh, build intelligence. So I definitely think we can try to abstract away the first principles of intelligence and then try to go from these principles to an intelligent machine that might look nothing like the brain. Mm-hmm. So uh, you work at Google now, and yeah. I'm curious if the views that you just explained, are those shared by many of your colleagues at Google? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a pretty, pretty mainstream kind of uh, approach to uh, the, the philosophy of the mind among um, machine learning researchers that, sure, it's uh, that biology basically should only be used as a source of inspiration, but that we should not try to just copy what he's doing, right? That we should instead uh, try to understand in a very abstract way, you know, the, the principles of intelligence and then build our own thing. So I think an analogy would be if you, if you want to uh, make uh, a flying machine, so instead of observing birds and trying to be an artificial bird, instead you should uh, try to understand the first principles of flight. So things like fluid dynamics and then um, build kind of a theory, uh, uh, which would be in physics, just fluid dynamics, and then use uh, this theory to build a more efficient flying machine, which would be nothing like a bird, more like a, a plane. Sure. So, okay, we've talked about machine learning kind of in the abstract, and I want to start easing into a conversation about machine learning in practice. So machine learning is increasingly important at engineering companies. And the old model of software and software engineering was was mostly divided into the roles of people like software engineers. And you had 
QA engineers and you had, you know, software development managers. But I get the sense that the rise of machine learning has changed this because you need a wider variety of specializations among engineers. And you start to get these roles like data scientists and data engineers. So before we start talking about Keras, the you know, the library that you've built, tell me about how you see the structure of teams in software organizations changing to accommodate the evolution of machine learning as being a critical component of an engineering organization? So I think most organizations, so uh, specifically startups, which are, you know, the big employers of data scientists these days, um, they don't, they don't really get it. So uh, people tend to put too much um, focus on uh, machine learning, but it turns out, uh, like algorithms, I mean, but it turns out if you want to solve uh, business problems, machine learning, the machine learning part is actually a tiny part of the solution. So uh, applied machine learning at startups and so on, it's mostly about uh, formulating the right problem, asking the right questions, defining the right metrics that will be tied to um, to, to business goals. And then collecting the right data to answer these questions and so on. And at the end of the day, the amount of time you spend uh, actually building a machine learning problem, uh, building a machine learning uh, model to solve your problem is uh, is tiny compared to uh, um, all these other things you have to do. And which is why, so the, the role of a data scientist tends to be more like, you know, sometimes they say it's more like a, uh, the role of a janitor in a way. So you're like <laughs> uh, taking care of uh, uh, collecting this data, uh, uh, cleaning up the data and so on. And at the end of the day, you spend very little time modeling the data. So, Interesting. Okay. Well, so a company like Google is trying to bake machine learning into all of the consumer applications. And sometimes machine learning is easier to develop in the lab than it is to deploy into the wild. What are some best practices to deploying the machine learning models that data scientists develop to production systems? Best practices. Um, well, I think one uh, one big gotcha is uh, when uh, the data set you're using to train your model uh, differs in some way from the data you're going to be applying your model to in production. So it can happen a lot. So especially if you have uh, seasonal data, like imagine that uh, you want to predict uh, ad clicks and you collect data for one quarter and then you build a model and then you, you apply it to the next quarter. And, you know, um, it's my, the results might be, uh, completely, completely wrong. Right. Uh, and another example is if you're trying to predict, uh, fraud, for instance. So you look at, um, you know, buying activity on, a, on an e-commerce website and you try to predict uh, which sort of activity pattern um, is indicated of fraud. But the problem is that fraudsters are updating their techniques constantly. So if you train a model at a, a certain point in time and then you apply it later, it's, uh, it's not going to work. So you have to keep your model updated, you know, in real time, which is, uh, which is very difficult to do. So I, but I think if you, if you can ensure the proper match between uh, the data you were training your model on and the data you're going to apply your, apply your model on, then you sh- should, should be doing fine. Mm. And so, you know, one of the ways uh, that I've talked to people about um, how to potentially 
alleviate some of the problems associated with deploying machine learning is is testing machine learning models. Do you do you have any ideas for how people can test their models? Because I think of this as a difficult challenge when you're essentially trying to test against a data set that is evolving and changing over time. Yeah, so it's uh well it's difficult, you know, because even if you do forward testing, uh, so basically just running your model on production data for a while, but uh, without actually deploying your model to production, um, it can be very difficult to draw any uh, conclusions to what you're seeing. So one example would be trying to predict stock market, for instance, So which is very difficult because if you if you find any signal in the noise over the past like three months, for instance, uh, maybe somebody else is going to notice it and start uh, arbitraging it, and is and then the signal is going to disappear, right? And so there's not there's not like yeah, basically there's it's it's a difficult problem. There's no way to be <laughs> sure that your model is going to work, right? Sure, no silver bullet. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Well, so I want to start easing towards a discussion of Keras, and um, and since Keras is a deep learning library. Uh, I want to start with kind of a, an overview. What is deep learning? How do you define it? So deep learning is uh, the notion that um, you are going to model uh, some information space as a hierarchy of features. And this hierarchy is going to be deep, which means it's going to have uh, more than you know uh, three or four layers. So for a very long time, uh, machine learning has been mostly shallow. Uh, which meant uh, first uh, a manual uh, feature engineering step. So you take the data and you uh, extract some uh, handcrafted features uh, that characterize best uh, what you want to get from this data. And then you train um, a model that maps directly these handcrafted features uh, to predictions. You know, And uh, deep learning replaces this model with... Um, the notion is you are going to learn uh, your features instead of uh, handcrafting them, and you are going to learn more than just one layer of representations. You are going going to learn multiple successive layers of representations, mm. and so which allows you to model much uh, more complex spaces uh, much more accurately. So, would you also describe this as a movement from supervised learning where uh, humans have to be in the loop to uh, less supervised, like unsupervised learning? So uh, supervised and unsupervised are terms that have a very specific meaning in machine learning. So usually it, uh, it's a difference between um, training a model against uh, labels and training a model um, that learns to reconstruct its, uh, its training data instead of trying to predict some label. So I think it's definitely uh, a movement a move from uh, more humans in the loop and more uh, kind of hand tuning in the loop to less of that. So it's, it is kind of, so the dream of deep learning is very much uh, to be able to just uh, plug a model uh, into, into any kind of random data and get results out of it, right? Without, uh, without the need for any uh, feature and crafting and so on. And, uh, and to some extent, uh, it's been uh, it's been succeeding pretty well. Mm. 
what are the uh, what are the bottlenecks to to even greater success? So in deep learning, I think the big bottleneck is that nobody really understands uh, why deep learning works. So deep learning is a it's a it's a very practical field. So we have techniques that we know work, but we don't really know why they work. And so it's kind of like uh, I can like neuroscience. It's it's yeah. I guess you could compare it to neuroscience. <laughs> so the way the way research proceeds is that you try a bunch of things and then you you throw you know you throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall and then you look at what sticks. And uh, when something sticks, you usually don't know why. So you one, once you notice that something works, you're happy and you come up with some handwavy explanation of why it might work. But usually it's uh, it's not uh, it's not accurate. So and the, f- the fact that we do not have any solid theory of deep learning uh, is really slowing down progress because it means we have to, instead of designing uh, a more efficient solution, we have to kind of brute force the space of solution until we find something. Uh, one example is uh, just, you know, trying tens or, you know, hundreds of different uh, convolutional neural network architectures until we find, until we find uh, something that's... Uh, that's better than the, the previous state of the art. And uh, instead of that, if we had some theory, we could just uh, kind of predict what, what what is going to be the best architecture. Well, certainly in an ideal world, we would have that. But is it possible that we need to just make a paradigm shift to saying, you know, we're going to have to be satisfied with not understanding what this underlying engine is doing, and we're just going to leverage the increasing uh, hardware capabilities and and continue to uh, take advantage of brute force mechanisms. Is there is there anything fundamentally wrong with that? Um, I think it's not. There's nothing fundamentally wrong. I mean, it works. It, this is exactly the way deep learning has been working. And um, deep learning, you know, the it's been uh, it's been this huge uh, uh, success because it does solve problems, right? We don't really know how, why, but it does. <laughs> and um, so there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's not a very efficient way to make progress. So my impression is that right now we're still uh, we're still making progress very fast without having any sort of solid theory of deep learning. But uh, at some point, it's going to stop. So you know, progress is usually sigmoidal. So um, you start slow, then you have this uh, big explosion of progress, and then at some point you're gonna you're gonna hit a bottleneck. You're gonna uh, progress is gonna slow down, and we are not yet at that point where where we have stopped uh, making progress. So we are still making very fast progress without really understanding what's going on. But okay. at some point we, we will reach this bottleneck, and probably the only way we will be able to go past it is by coming up with a, a theory of deep learning. Okay, so um, as you mentioned, you know the 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 models that you construct for deep learning are composed of layers, and uh, Keras features an interface to dealing with these layers. Could you talk more about what a layer is? So a layer uh, can be understood as one uh, level of representations uh, of your data. So one level of abstraction. So a layer is like uh, a, a unit, like a kind of function that transforms some input data and into some uh, a projection of your data uh, on some feature space at some level of abstraction. And so deep learning is about stacking these uh, uh, 
level of representations. Um, and um, so typically you will see uh, increasing abstraction uh, as you stack layers. Okay, so as you said, layers get composed into this sequential model, the series of layers. Could you give me an example of how several layers could be organized together to represent a useful model? Uh, sure. I think the classic example for deep learning is uh, uh, the convol convolutional neural network, uh, which uh, which you use to uh, classify images. And um, one, uh, the basic example that the, um, you have this stack of uh, convolutional layers, and the first layer is going to uh, learn uh, is going to be an edge detector, so it's going to uh, learn to detect uh, basically edges in small patches of the input data. And uh, the next layer is going to uh, learn uh, more more complex patterns that are made out of these edges, and so on, until you end up with uh, things like digits or letters. Mm, okay. That, that's a that's a great example. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, what types of tools and programming languages are engineers using to write these neural networks, these models? Um, I think the big uh, winner in terms of languages is Python. So uh, most people are working with Python today, uh, which is being uh, uh, reinforced even further by uh, the open sourcing of TensorFlow from Google, right? Um, so if, if you want like an overview of the main uh, deep learning frameworks uh, there's one that's being maintained by uh, Facebook mostly which is called Torch which is uh, written in Lua it's, uh, it's been quite popular for a while um, otherwise there's uh, Ciano which is um, it, this was a framework for which Keras was initially developed it's, uh, it's written for Python uh, and now there's TensorFlow which is uh, also written for Python So with that in mind, let's get to talking about Keras, which is a uh, Python deep learning library. What is Keras? So Keras is this, um, uh, it's kind of, uh, is this uh, very modular, uh, very simple uh, framework for building deep neural networks, basically. And it was originally meant as uh, kind of a, Python version of Torch. So Torch is this uh, Lua framework uh, that has very nice API, but has, that is quite annoying to use uh, in large part because it is written in Lua. And um, so I wanted to make a Python version of this, and uh, it ended up uh, diverging uh, quite far uh, from Torch. Um, yeah, so really, it's a, it's a, a library that's focused on uh, on speed, but not not really like runtime speed or computation speed. It's really about uh, experimentation speed. So you should mm. be able to use Keras to prototype uh, a deep learning model very quickly in like minutes. Sure. So okay, so developer developer efficiency is is one of the focuses of Keras. Yes. Um, so as you were writing it. Were there certain times where you know you were kind of writing it as a, initially as a rewrite of Torch or a, a, a remake of Torch, perhaps? What were the points where you felt you were deviating from the functionality that Torch was written in 
I mean, obviously, it's a different language, so you're going to change certain things from Lua to Python, but there must have also been certain design calls that were not really related to the language change. Yeah, so uh, I think the two big differences uh, are the way, uh, uh, first, the way uh, recurrent neural networks are being handled, and the second is the way that graph uh, networks are being handled. So... The very first thing I wrote in Keras was a sequ- sequential model, and I wrote it uh, with uh, essentially the same API as Torch. Uh, but everything else started, you know, deviating quite a bit. And um, yeah, I think one of the reasons why Keras got very popular very quickly is because it was when it uh, when it was launched uh, one of the only libraries for Python that had good support for uh, recurrent neural networks. And at the same time, uh, there was this uh, explosion of uh, popular interest for recurrent neural networks. You know, things like uh, being able to uh, generate generate text sequences, being able to answer natural language questions, all these kind of problems. Sure. Okay. So as you said, you know, one of the big motivations was this ability to prototype quickly or perform fast experimentation. Why do neural network developers need to be able to perform fast experimentation? So the basic uh, reason is because we don't really know, we, we can't really know in advance if a model is going to work because we don't really have a good theory of deep learning. So the only way to um, evaluate a model is to actually build it and run it. And so you want to be able to... Um, experiment with a, a wide variety of uh, model architectures um, very quickly. And this is what Keras allows you to do. So one example is, let's say you build uh, some model with some architecture, and then you want to test um, a few loss functions. Well, in Keras, you just have to change one line uh, to test a different loss function in your model. Mm, okay, that makes sense. So Keras has some guiding principles which define how you have developed the project and how you continue to develop it. And I want to go through these because I think they're an interesting case study, not only in Keras, but in why why it's important to have these guiding principles around a project. So the first guiding principle you have is modularity. Why is modularity important to a deep learning library? Well, deep learning can be understood as essentially plugging together uh, layers, which are, you know, these uh, basic uh, information processing units turning uh, some inputs into some different outputs, which is typically a representation of your inputs over some feature space. And um, so you you really want to uh, make... Uh, you really want to be, to, to be working with a framework that's kind of like, you know, a bunch of Lego blocks, Right, and uh, each Lego block is going to be like, for instance, a layer or maybe a loss function, um, or you know, a, a weight constraint or whatever. And you want to be able to just uh, plug uh, these blocks together with uh, as few constraints uh, as possible, and because then you have freedom to experiment, right? And so, yeah, majority. Okay, that makes sense. So, so a developer should be able to combine like standalone models to create new models. Could, could you give me an example of how models could be composed together? Sure. Um, let's say you've built uh, a vision model, so something that uh, that's capable, for instance, of classifying pictures. 
And uh, you've also built uh, some model that's capable of generating text. And you can combine these two uh, to, to create, for instance, an image captioning model. So a model is going to look at a picture and it's going to output uh, some text describing what's in the picture. So this is a, a, a classic example of uh, model compositionality. So you train uh, one model separately, this vision model, and then you can plug it into, into a larger, larger architecture. Uh, and it's going to be capable of more. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. So Keras is also built to be what you call minimalistic. How do you impose minimalism on the project? So minimalism basically means that uh, your code should be clean, your code should be short, uh, your code should be very modular. So each uh, functional class should be kept short and readable. So this is very important because if you really want freedom to experiment, you should also have freedom to go look at the code and modify it, right? So I, I feel that that is very important. So especially for uh, researchers using Keras who want, you know, total freedom to adapt Keras to uh, to whatever they want to do. So when you build a framework, uh, it's based on some assumptions. And these assumptions, there are constraints for users, right? And sometimes you want to do something uh, outside uh, of these assumptions. So you want to uh, get rid of these constraints. The only way to do this is to uh, go dive into the source and modify it. And if uh, if the if you do not follow uh, this principle of minimalism, uh, you might end up with, with, with source code that's bloated uh, or that's, you know, difficult to read, difficult to follow. And uh, this is a big... Um, obstacle for uh, anybody who wants to uh, modify the framework itself. And I feel the ability to modify the framework is part of the feature set of Keras. Okay, that's very interesting. So Keras has two models. Uh, One is sequential, where you make a linear stack of layers, and the other is the graph, where you have a directed acyclic graph of layers. Which cases do each of these models make sense in? So I believe uh, most users uh, are only going to be using the sequential model. Sequential model is really about mapping one input to one output. Uh, but in some cases, uh, you might have, um, for instance, several different inputs. So let's say, for instance, you're building this uh, image captioning model. So you're going to have, um, when you train your model, uh, you may have uh, one input that's going to be uh, a picture and one input is going to be some text, right? So uh, in that case, uh, you might want to use a graph. So uh, typically, you're going to use uh, a graph uh, when you want to map a single input to a single output, and you're going to use um, a graph when you have a, a multi-model uh, inputs and outputs. Hmm. Okay. How does... Keras interface with the GPU. So Keras is uh, is built to be able to run on top of uh, either TensorFlow or Ciano, uh, which are um, tensor manipulation libraries that can uh, compile to uh, C++ and CUDA. And uh, so Keras uses these libraries to do tensor manipulation. And then these libraries are going to uh, output some CUDA code that can run on a, a NVIDIA GPU. So Keras doesn't really uh, handle any of, uh, of that itself. 
is just relying on uh, on these underlying uh, mm. libraries. Okay, so that brings us to kind of a discussion of of uh, these tensor libraries. As you said, Keras, uh, I mean, by default, uses uh, Theano as its tensor library. What is a tensor? So a tensor is just a multidimensional array. So if you know what, what a matrix is, which is like a table of numbers, you can think of a tensor as a higher dimensional version of that. So, for instance, a 2D tensor is a table of numbers. A 3D tensor is more like a cube of numbers and so on. Is a tensor the means of passing data between layers? Yes, absolutely. So in Keras, the input and output to any layer is always going to be one tensor. Mm, okay, interesting. So what is uh, what is Theano and, and how does Keras, like if you use Theano, how does that compare to using Keras with Theano? So Theano is uh, on the ladder of abstraction. I would say Theano is lower level than Keras. So Theano is really about uh, directly uh, performing uh, mass operations over tensors. And meanwhile, uh, Keras is about uh, manipulating basic blocks, which are already pretty advanced things um basically you know uh neural network layers so it's uh it's it's higher up in the ladder of abstraction basically mm. so software engineering daily did a show about tensorflow which mm-hmm. can be used in place of theano why would a developer want to use tensorflow rather than theano so i think currently tensorflow uh might not perform as well as Ciano over uh, a number of points. So TensorFlow has some performance issues, and it does not uh, have all of the features that uh, Ciano offer. But that's because TensorFlow is still very young, very new. It's uh, only been um, released uh, a few months ago, and um, I think one motivation for using TensorFlow would be that TensorFlow is backed by Google. So you have the guarantee that it's going to get better over time and probably uh, quite fast. So I wouldn't be surprised if uh, one year from now or even you know sooner, TensorFlow uh, would have more features in Ciano, specifically things like running in a distributed setting. And uh, it might also become faster. What are your impressions of TensorFlow? Um, I mean, I assume you read the paper. Where do yes. you what do you like about the project, and where do you see it going? So my impression of TensorFlow is that it is uh, like a more mature version of Ciano, uh, even though it does not yet uh, perform at the same level because it's not quite as optimized as Ciano, but it will become, you know, probably even better optimized in the future. So. Um, the one thing that's very interesting about TensorFlow is that it's built uh, from the ground up to be able to run in a, in a distributed environment, So, which is not uh, something that was very easy to do in CN. <laughs> okay, interesting. So uh, speaking of that, I mean, how difficult is it to use Keras in production? What are the challenges that developers face? So... Uh, I haven't heard much about uh, developers using Keras in production. I know there are some, um, but 
really Keras is meant uh, as a prototyping library. So I would not mm. necessarily recommend using it in production. So what is the migration path from uh, a, a prototyped Keras model to a production model? Well, one thing you could do is, uh, uh, I think TensorFlow is very suitable uh, for serving a production model. So the best would be you would uh, prototype, develop, and uh, train your model uh, using Keras. And once that's done, uh, you can uh, save out of Keras um, the computation graph in TensorFlow of your model, which you can then serve standalone. Mm. What are some other projects and libraries that work well with Keras? So um, let's say that you're using Keras uh, on top of Ciano. Then you can probably uh, interface it with any other Ciano-based library. Um, so one Ciano-based library that's uh, quite popular is called uh, Lasagne. Uh, it's used uh, quite a bit on uh, Kaggle. I know if you've heard of uh, Kaggle.com. Sure, absolutely. The science competition website, yeah. So uh, because both these libraries would be based on Ciano, so they would be manipulating the same tensor objects so you could interface them. Okay, interesting. So uh, maybe this doesn't fit into the conversation, but do uh, would, you, would you want to use uh, some of the newer streaming frameworks like like Spark or Storm with Keras, or is is that totally orthogonal? Uh, it's uh, it's not completely orthogonal. So there is actually a project on GitHub about uh, using uh, Keras uh, uh, in a distributed setting uh, with Spark. It's called uh, Elephas, E-L-E-P-H-A-S. Mm. It's made uh, by um, a company in, uh, in Germany. So it's uh, you can definitely uh, run a Keras on top of Spark uh, using this project. So the general idea is, uh, is that you're going to replicate a Keras model uh, on several nodes and um, and just do distributed training. So is that kind of like you take a Keras model and then make it into an RDD? Yes. Interesting. So um, you know I. I've done some shows about libraries that were written for prototypes. And um, I think what I find a lot of times with prototypes is that people tend to turn them into uh, like the thing that ends up being that starts as a prototype ends up being a full fledged application. Um, But maybe that's not something that that is prone to happening in machine learning. Um, could you see Keras becoming something that people actually build production models knowingly in? I think it's already happening. Uh, it's not necessarily something I would recommend, but it's clearly happening. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I know. Uh, since now you can use Keras on top of TensorFlow, I don't think it's, uh, it's a big issue. Uh, I don't think Ciano was very much production ready, but TensorFlow definitely is. Hmm. So um, what is the future of Keras? What's the roadmap? So we're just going to continue uh, building, uh, building out the feature set of Keras, improving code quality, improving documentation, 
Uh, one thing that we definitely want to do more in the future is uh, provide more examples, you know, tutorials, uh, how to scare us to solve problem X, problem Y. Um, and um, one thing we want to add is uh, a library of uh, pre-trained models that you, can, that you could load with Keras. So instead of having to uh, train your own model from scratch, you could just download one and then fine-tune it to your problem. Okay. So many of the engineers who listen to this show have probably only a loose understanding of machine learning, and they spend probably most of their time running, writing just kind of day-to-day business logic, um, maintaining their application and so on. But I'm sure many of them want to know more about machine learning, or they at least want to get a basis for what they need to understand about machine learning going into the future. What are the concepts, what are the basic machine learning concepts that engineers that may not may not necessarily be working on machine learning but they need to what are the things that they need to know to be to stay up to date with the way that our field is changing so well it depends if you want to understand uh, machine learning uh, or if you just want to use machine learning i think you you can use machine learning without necessarily understanding it uh, one example would be uh, a very popular uh, machine learning library uh, scikit-learn so you can definitely use scikit-learn to solve data science problems without really understanding the underlying algorithms, right? You, as, uh, as you gain experience using it, you will start um, gaining some intuition about the properties of each model. But you do not even need to understand what these models are really doing in the background to, to develop this intuition. So if you're interested in really understanding machine learning, then um, you should start uh, understanding with understanding linear algebra. And then you should go from there to uh, implementing your own uh, basic uh, tar versions of uh, popular algorithms, you know, things like logistic regression, random forest, um, some neural networks, and so on. So I believe uh, implementing your own algorithms is key to understanding what they're doing. So that's one thing. And if you just want to use machine learning uh, to solve problems and you don't really care about understanding how it works, then um, the best thing to do is to use uh, one of these very high-level, easy-to-use frameworks like Scikit-Learn or you know even Keras. Mm. You mentioned linear uh, algebra. Why is linear algebra so important? So because what you're doing, for instance, deep learning, is just manipulating tensors, so lots of tensor multiplication and so on. And if you and you know these tensors, they're they're encoding. Uh, points in uh, in some vector space. So you, if you want to develop an intuition about what's going on inside your network, you definitely need to have these mental models uh, that come from linear algebra. Hmm. From your experience working on Keras, what have you learned about writing developer tools or specifically open source developer tools? So I've learned that uh, open source can be very frustrating sometimes. Uh you know, um, you release something, and uh, it it can be very overwhelming when when the project becomes popular because you get so many support requests. And one thing that you you have to understand early on is uh, you have to learn how to say no to feature requests and support requests and so on because this is what is going to allow you to keep focus, uh, to stay focused on uh, to stay focused on. Uh, uh, making the library progress, making the project progress. 
And you cannot, like, if you start answering every support request and every feature request, it's going to take all your time and it's going to um, destroy the project ultimately. Mm. So we, we talked a bit about the TensorFlow paper. Um, there's another paper that came out of Google somewhat recently about machine learning called Machine Learning, the High Interest Credit Card of Technical Debt. Um, did you, you read that one also, yeah. I'm assuming? Yes. What, what's your take on that paper? What do you think about it? So uh, it points out a very important problem, which is that when you are introducing a machine learning model in production, uh, it uh, it introduces uh, lots of dependencies, some of them uh, not immediately obvious. Um, so things like the data, the model was trained on, and so on. And so I think we are starting to develop uh, some best practices for dealing with uh, machine learning models in production over the long term. But because it's still very new, uh, we are still uh, the field is still very much in its uh, infancy. I would say, the field of uh, production, machine learning engineering. Mm. Um, what are, um, from, uh, I, so uh, I don't know if you've been following, or if you followed what uh, came out of NIPS, but I'm assuming you followed that as well. Was there was there anything that excited you that came out of that conference? Um, in general, I would say you can see uh, several trends that are quite interesting. So things like the fact that uh, we are still making basically exponential progress on all fronts. So we still have not reached this uh, this bottleneck of progress that uh, we are probably going to meet in the next few years. Um, so one thing that's interesting to notice is how models uh, are getting uh, bigger and deeper. Uh, so we're still in this like Cambrian explosion of uh, model architectures. Why do we assume that we're going to hit a bottleneck? Um, I don't think everybody assumes it. I do. Uh, simply because we've been making so much progress so fast, it cannot possibly last forever. Well, it's without precedent, that's for sure. Yeah, so usually um, if you look at uh, the progress of science over time, it tends to... Um, you have uh, kind of sigmoidal patterns. So uh, some some group of people make some important discoveries. And then uh, following these discoveries, you have like very, very fast progress until you've kind of exhausted the space of potential discoveries that, uh, that were made possible uh, by the initial discovery, right? And uh, in deep learning, the initial discovery was early, the realization that, uh, yes, it was possible to train very deep models um, and bypass, you know, the, the, the big problems we, we, we had with this at first, so things like uh, vanishing gradients. And um, once we realized that, and once we developed a few techniques to do that, uh, everything uh, started going very fast. But at some point, we will reach the, the limitations. We will reach uh, the limits of deep learning as, as we understand it today, and we will need a new formulation of deep learning, maybe. Hmm, okay. So... Um Play devil's advocate against yourself for a moment and assume that we are not going to hit some sort of bottleneck. Like what if, uh, assume machine learning is this, you know, this different kind of science and the, the success and progress just continues. How fast are we going? Like what's, 
what's on the horizon if we don't hit any bottlenecks? Um, how fast are we going? Uh, well, uh, in terms of uh, beating benchmarks, uh, we are going exponentially fast. Um, but the thing is, we are just... What we are doing is not necessarily fundamentally different uh, from what we are doing before deep learning. Uh, we are just doing it much better in some way. So I don't think deep learning has given us um, a better understanding of um, machine learning in general. And you know, it's not it's not like we are going to come up with uh, artificial humans in, in the next twenty years, right? <laughs> Uh, we still do not understand anything but the, the human mind. And some people tend to consider that because we are making very fast progress in machine learning and AI these days, uh, we're going to, like, like there's a continuity between building an artificial human and, you know, solving these uh, machine learning benchmarks. But there's not, actually. So just because you're, you're making very fast progress on a set of benchmarks does not mean that you're making actually a real progress on the fundamental underlying problem, which is a, the problem of intelligence. Well, the the whole Kurzweilian science behind this, well, or his hypothesis is that you don't, like, we wouldn't be asymptoting towards anything that looks like a human anyway, because whatever the, is the the uh, the highest order of artificial intelligence operates much differently than than a human would. I mean, that that t- kind of takes us back to the 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 root of our of our conversation. I mean, the if if we think about the the hardware that that the human is built on, then it's not uh, you know it's 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 different than the hardware that we're building um, these first these other first principles on. So uh, I don't know I don't know what the implications of that are, but um, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, do you so in the uh, I guess I'll, I'll I'll wrap up with with this final question in the um, in the most uh, ambitious uh, uh, unhalted exponential growth of deep learning. How does the how does the the type of artificial intelligence that we would asymptote towards compare to the human intelligence that we have today? So it's difficult to uh, to answer because we cannot redefine really uh, very well uh, human intelligence, you know. Uh, but I can tell you this, um, what deep learning does, so deep learning is very, very good at, uh, mapping, uh, some input space to, uh, some output space of your choice. So for instance, if you have a bunch of pictures and then you have labels, then, uh, deep learning is going to be very, very good at, um, mapping the two, right? So supervised learning. And, uh, but it cannot really do much else. At the end of the day, so deep learning is just a very uh, clever way of uh, optimizing um, a loss function. So wherever you can define a loss function, which is basically going to be uh, this relationship between your input and your output, then uh, deep learning is will give you a solution. But that's um, that's I think that's very far away from uh, human intelligence. You know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's that's a good answer. Um, Francois Chalet, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been super interesting talking to you about deep learning and Keras, and um, I'll be following your work closely. Yep. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs>